Hello and welcome to Looks Unfamiliar, the show that remembers that the Grade 2 listed police box on Scarborough Seafront doesn't look anything like the actual TARDIS and is still quite upset about it even now. I'm Paul Abbott and joining me today to talk about some of the things he remembers that no one else ever seems to is writer, TV's clangers expert and actual host of this podcast, Tim Worthington. Tim? What are you up to? Where can we find it? Well, you've already blown one of them, which is normally hosting this. Sometimes <laughs> with you as a... Actually, no, you're more often a guest on my other podcast, The Marvel One. It's good, except it sucks. So there's both of those you can find. You can find what I'm up to in general at timworthington.org. I think the main thing to highlight now is Doctor Who magazine has just published a 60th anniversary special called 60 Moments in Time, which is... The size of a paving stone, I would say. I don't know if you've seen it yet, but it is very large. The postman had to knock on my door to deliver it. But I'm in there three times talking about Doctor Who on the radio, which I won't say too much about because we might be coming back to that. Doctor Who's special relationship with Blue Peter and also the Doctor Who theme. I agreed to do that when they asked me. And then about 10 minutes later, the enormity of feeling like I've bitten off more than I could chew, set in. I was thinking, how can I do this? This is the thing people most associate with Doctor Who. I am going to get it wrong. Everyone's going to hate me. But I went down a different route with it. I won't spoil it just yet, but I've tried to stay away from the traditional view of it and get to some of the real facts about it. And I think it's come out okay. Nobody has called for my cancellation yet. Any mention of Paul McCartney trying to get Delia Derbyshire to do a radiophonic version of Yesterday? Not quite in that detail, (laughs) but the Beatles do make the cut in there. Excellent. So I was going to say, you should just introduce yourself and what you're doing. Okay, well, my main thing at the moment is working on a podcast with my brother called The Big Beatles Sort Out, which is an investigation into organising the Beatles into an entirely subjective list. You have made like a CIA thing about their secret clandestine financial shenanigans. <laughs> You're investigating the organised yeah. Beatles. <laughs> We're taking Apple down from within. Yeah, no. The big Beatles sort out. Started out sorting out all their core catalogue of songs. I accompany my brother with facts while he makes up some stupid numbers. And as we've moved along through the series, we've done different things, looking at films, looking at solo projects... And season four will be coming out in the new year. And we haven't revealed officially what the topic is, but it will be in the 60s. It will be Beatles adjacent. So watch out for the big Beatles sort out series four. You can find us on Instagram and Twitter mainly. And can I just say, I am very honoured to be recording this in the studio where half the magic happens with the big Beatles sort out. Oh, yes. Yeah, yeah. This is very much the Abbey Road of Brookdale Road. (laughs) Okay, so what better way to start this very special episode of Looks Unfamiliar than by listening to everyone's favourite science fiction theme tune. Doctor and his two companions, Romana and K-9, were lost. It wasn't the first time this had happened, of course. The steering mechanism of the Doctor's time and relative dimensions in Space Machine, the TARDIS for short, was erratic, to say the least. The battered old police box had often taken him to the wrong planet, in the wrong century. But this time, it was worse. 
for the Doctor and his travelling companions were actually in the wrong universe. Tim, I think it's probably a fair guess to say that neither Delia Derbyshire nor Ron Grainer had anything to do with that piece of music. What was that Yamaha PSS 480-tastic tune, and what does it introduce? That was the introductory music from what is officially called the talking book of the Doctor Who story, State of Decay. Yes. Which was actually issued twice on cassette, firstly by Pickwick Talking Books, and then by a company called Ditto as a double cassette thing where it was split into two. And Ditto seems to have done a lot of licensed properties, like they did the Transformers one where it was Battle of the Mecho Dinosaurs or something, which I'm assuming uh. you may have had. Yes, bizarrely, in amongst all of that, I mean, the Pickwick Talking Books range seems to have been quite serious. It seems to be aimed at people on long car journeys. You know, there were a lot of classic novels. There were quite a few with Terry Venables reading his Hazel novels, which sounds comical now, but that was the big TV detective show of the day. Yeah. And it was based on his original novels. Yes, Tom Bacon narrated State of Decay, which was a story from the 1980 series. Now, I'm probably going to cause a bit of trouble here because I found nothing will upset people on the internet quicker than saying you like something. <laughs> that seems to be a surefire way to get yourself in trouble. And Don't be a... show enthusiasm. That's just <laughs> Your so gauche. Fire. Do you know what? I think they should release Carnival of Light by the Beatles. Oh, don't, don't. <laughs> I can almost hear the emails dropping in the inbox now. Yeah, State of Decay is a story that I think has a very low reputation if it has one at all now. I think people just ignore it. But if you go back to 1980, when I was watching it, whatever age I was, it was already quite exciting because, you know, it was known that Doctor Who would change at the end of that series. I mean, that's what we called it then. And I was aware, because I have elder siblings, that they used to say, oh yeah, it used to be John Pertwee who's Wurzel Gummidge, but he changed him the one with the spiders. And so I was aware of that. So people were looking forward to that. But this was Doctor Who fighting space vampires. Sounds brilliant. It does. And the whole thing about, I remember watching it thinking there's a sort of switcheroo moment in it where he realises that the vampires are called Orcon, Camilla and Zargo and that they were originally astronauts called O'Connor, Macmillan and Sharky and the names have degenerated over time, which people sneer at a bit now as a lazy device. But I remember thinking, that's really clever. And then at the end... A rocket goes up, fails, comes back down, and stakes the universe's biggest space vampire through the heart. <laughs> and that seemed to me to be the cleverest thing ever. I think sometimes we forget. We look at things that it's all right to like these things as an adult, but you shouldn't lose sight of what works for the target audience. Because this would have been yeah. around the same time that I saw a poster on the bus stop and thought, wow, James Bond's in space. Yes, yeah, I don't yeah. think Moonraker has a very good rep now, but that is what the people who are supposed to be watching these things like. And yeah, I love State of Decay. I still love it now. I was very excited when I think it was in 1981, the Target novel of it came out. I remember going into, with book tokens for my birthday, I think going into W.H. Smith on Allerton Road and heading straight for that. That's Terence Dix, isn't it? It is Terence Dix, who wrote the original script for State of Decay, which was a couple of years old by that point. It's sort of more in tune with the mid to late 70s gothic horror era of Doctor Who, yeah, but it got held much. back because BBC Two were doing their brilliant adaptation of Count Dracula, which if anyone's never seen that, seriously, I'm led to believe that's the closest to the source text of any sort of UK adaptation of Dracula ever, and it's really, really good. It's not seen that often, I think, because it's mainly on videotape, so it looks a bit sort of... yes. 
When I say cheap, I mean in relation to how things look now, in relation to the 79 Dracula film, which had, you know, a lot of the same people in it, but just Frank Langella as Dracula. So yeah, it was originally called The Witch Lords, and they made it in 1980 as part of the E-Space trilogy, which again, to me, was really exciting. The Doctor Romana and K-9, don't forget K-9, are lost in an alternate universe. And, you know, there's a multiverse, you know, threatening to destroy all creativity forever, which we're told every day is happening at the moment, (laughs) because it's just been invented by DC now. To ruin <laughs> cinema. State of Decay was something I always used to think, oh yeah, it was brilliant that one where they had the vampires. And then one Christmas, I've been trying to remember what year it was. It may have been, I think, 1985. You know, there wasn't the internet then. You didn't know all the stuff that was available. In my pillowcase, because that's how we did things in our family, not stocking. In amongst everything else, I pulled out the double cassette of State of Decay read by Tom Baker with a sort of slightly blurry photo of him from State of Decay on the front cover. (laughs) And I thought, fantastic. I put it on straight away with sort of... Do you remember those when Warmans first came out? They had those headphones with orange foam on them i do and i'd somehow i didn't have a walkman but i'd acquired a pair of them from somewhere i remember listening to it and then i heard this music and i cannot decide to this day whether i think it's genius or atrocious i think it's very from the few audio books i remember having as a kid talking books of which i suspect some were probably pickwick or ditto they always seem to have something along those lines something with synthesizers recorded in a way that they don't like a special way they do for going on audio books I don't know what makes it have the quality that it has. It's kind of brilliant. I mean, it's obviously it's a rights issue. They can't get the rights to use a proper recording of the Doctor Who theme. It's not a BBC product. Without having checked, it would be brilliant to think that that was the music they used for every audiobook that they put out. So if you bought Dr. Jekyll and Mr. Hyde read by John Hurt, it still had that music at the start of it. I have checked, actually, and it isn't. They had different music for every single one. But that led me to an interesting theory, which is... The 1980 series was when sort of the new younger members of the BBC Radiophonic Workshop took over doing music for Doctor Who. And it all sounds, when I say it sounds a bit like this, please do not sue me, Peter Howell, but it's similar kind of synths. It's sort of similar musical motif aesthetic. And I suspect somebody had said, we need something that sounds a bit like Doctor Who music for this. Yes. And some poor overworked session musician had just put on an episode one Saturday. And thought, oh, right. Yeah, they do that sort of, when can I have my tea? And just recorded the first thing that came into his head that sounded a bit vaguely like something Roger Lynn would have done. Yeah, again, don't yeah. sue me, Roger, but I do think that's why. I also think they might have listened to Peter Howell's solo album, Through a Glass Darkly, which all is right. on BBC Records and which had a very similar fanfare in it. Okay, all right. Yeah, no, these are all good theories, I think. It does definitely sound like it's on a more of a domestic synthesizer rather than a big kit synthesizer that the Radiophonic Workshop would have had. But that's just sort of, I think, just a sort of particular tonal quality. Oh, it's one it. that the man would demonstrate to you in Tandy. That's yeah, that sort of thing. It. Yeah, That's why I mentioned the Yamaha PSS. 480 because it's very similar to that which is my first electronic keyboard it is a fascinating thing because it isn't the same script as the series obviously because it's just a reading it's not the same script as the actual novelization it's a whole other script but yeah pickwick put these things out first and then ditto's name comes from the fact that it's two cassettes that's where they got Ditto Which from. is sort of wrong, because the two cassettes have different content. If it was Ditto, yeah, they should be the same. Why have I bought this twice? I'm going to listen to it so much, you wear it out and you need this. But yeah, I did have a quick look. It's quite hard to find what other ones were put out by Ditto. I mean, you can find them here and there. But in terms of ones I found that you can link to Doctor Who nicely, like I say, 
Dr. Jekyll and Mr. Hyde, read by John Hurt. Noddy Stories, read by Richard, Richard Bryers. The Secret Seven, being read by Roy Castle. So, very interesting stuff. Fantastic sounding thing, I think, mm. really. I've fallen on the side of it being great. For the target market and the way it works, it's brilliant. And they should re-release the Blu-ray with that music instead of the actual Doctor Who thing. Well, I think there is a fascinating detail here, which is that, you know, it was just after, I'd say, this was in Tom Baker's final series. He has talked a lot about how it was a very emotional time for him for a couple of years afterwards. That's why he didn't come back in The Five Doctors. But he must have done this very shortly after filming his final scenes. And he's giving it his all. He's loving doing it. Yeah, it's brilliant. It's not autopilot Tom Baker, which, to be fair, you did see a bit of in Doctor Who sometimes. Mm. He is relishing it. He loves doing the voices. As you say, it is slightly different. It's been rewritten to suit the fact it's an audio-only medium. Some details have been changed, like Romana. The cut on her hand where she starts to realise there might be vampires is caused by the guards manhandling her, not by cutting her hand on the goblet like it was on TV. Yeah, it's just a fascinating reminder of a time when things like this were all we had i think when it first not when i got it but when it first came out there hadn't even been a bbc video release of any doctor who material the closest you could get to seeing state of decay again was hearing tom bacon narrate it and i loved it i still have the double cassette pack long since transferred to cd but i do put it on sometimes so i think you're absolutely right tom baker's performance is very far from wooden in that audiobook unlike your next choice not bad i suppose not too bad, Geppetto. Pinocchio! Wait up now! More trouble! Pinocchio! Oh, Pinocchio. <laughs> My boy. Can't you walk? Try. Try. <laughs> Sit. Sit. Go on, Pinocchio. That's it. That's my boy. Right, Tim. That's definitely not a Disney production. So whilst I'm very thankful we're not looking at it, what have we just listened to and why? Well, I think Far From Wooden was an understatement because this is the most wood anything can possibly be, believe me. When I see the word wood, the scarring memory of this programme comes back. This is the 1978 BBC adaptation of Pinocchio, which is part of the Sunday classic series, which, again, this is quite important. Sometimes they felt like the closest you got to actually Doctor Who when Doctor Who wasn't on. They were generally produced, written, directed and so on by Terence Dicks and by Barry Letts, who was previously co-showrunner with him on Doctor Who. They used a lot of people that they worked with on the show, like Elizabeth Sladen. Tom Baker was in when they did The Hand of the Baskervilles, a lot of the same directors and writers and musicians. And generally, you know, these were literary adaptation, things like Great Expectations, Gulliver and Lilliput, more modern things like The Franchise Affair and Diary of Anne Frank as well. Yeah, you weren't really watching that for sci-fi thrills, let's be honest. But in 1978, they did a version of Pinocchio, And the Sunday classic serials were notorious for adhering as closely as they could to the original source material. Now, I don't know how many people have actually read the original book of Pinocchio. 
but it's grotesque. It's brutal. Yeah, a, a moral tale more than the kid's sort of fairy story it became. There's a lot of violence in it and a lot of amorality. And ultimately, it's a story about a man whose grief for his dead son is so great that he builds an effigy of him and sort of wills it into life. Not exactly the cheery and heartwarming tale that Disney made it into. This, I remember being told, oh, Pinocchio's going to be on. And I am told that I have previously seen in the cinema the Disney Pinocchio. I don't remember it, but apparently the only bit I was bothered by of that was when the cat nearly slipped off the table. Apparently I recoiled in shock at that, but everything else I was fine with. This, however, it's difficult to describe. I'm going to have a go. It is, I say human actors, they're all dressed up in kind of Commedia dell'arte costumes, including Mr. Fox and Mr. Cat have horrible monkey animal heads on. They are interacting against very weird Italianate sets or sometimes just superimposed in front of really scratchy drawings with a screechy, splintery puppet who looks like a starved Robin Asquith who (laughs) just continually leaps into the air shouting, in a horrible distorted voice Lovely. and it's very it keeps the brutality of the original novel there are some really nasty bits of basically I know he's wooden and sort of superimposed in but a child being maltreated by adults and being conned out of money and so on and even when you watch it now it's a cacophony a visual cacophony as well yeah, it's just yeah. it's like somebody just wailing into your ear really loudly continuously and I stopped watching at some point I distinctly remember saying I didn't want to watch it anymore (laughs) not only that i remember the following year the christmas radio times arrived which is always an exciting moment you look through to spot what you wanted to watch that was on that was very exciting even things that were mundane like i remember thinking oh i must watch that episode of the secret life of tv in about 1986 which is just episode five of this channel four documentary series that'd be going on anyway but everything seemed that bit more magical Apart from this year, when I spotted an omnibus repeat of Pinocchio, slammed the radio time shut and left the room. (laughs) I mean, the curse of this is not only is it terrifying in and of itself, but it was essentially it's the Christmas show for the BBC in 1978. It runs on the four weeks up to Christmas Eve in December 1978. And then it's on New Year's Eve the following year as an omnibus. It's like, oh, you settle down to that. What a horrible year ahead you've got going (laughs) if that's what's in your brain. There was also apparently a Blue Peter episode featured about special effects yes and i remember not being very impressed when that came on even though it explained how is this bit of a myth that scene sync which is an effect that basically because previously when they used to superimpose one picture into another it was static you know as you can see in a lot of early 70s doctor who where it doesn't always look very convincing but this allowed cameras to move in synchronization so you could have say the pinocchio puppet walking along one of those scratchy illustrated background scrolling along behind him and it would look like a real time and people say oh the doctor who story meg lost in 1980 which was i think it was two stories before state decay was the first thing ever to use it and it wasn't it was pinocchio in 1978 there may even have been earlier examples but it was definitely used on that and they explained how that worked on blue peter and i should have been all over that i remember seeing they had an image of the cameramen with sort of blue cowls draped over them you know to be keyed at the oh, visual yeah, information yeah, yeah, yeah. and thinking Yeah, that doesn't look right. Yeah. It's amazing, though, the broader aspect, like you say, of the Sunday classics is such an 
important thing and it's something we've lost now. So anything like this would be very much event TV and it would come around every few years, maybe. But these big literary adaptations don't have like this constant thread that the Sunday classics seem to have had for decades, I think they ran in one form or another. Yeah, I think right up to the late 80s, I think the last one may have been the franchise affair. They did also do, one of the last ones they did was Brat Farrer which a lot of people will remember because that somehow became a really big deal. Yeah, they were quite a huge deal. And also we've lost that thing of everything seems to want to modernise, do a different take on something now. And we've lost that thing of just, here's the novel, we do it like that, which they pretty much stuck to. Yeah, They did do Vanity Fair a few too many times. (laughs) Given how long they went on for, they are very weirdly forgotten. They're very hard to get hold of now. The main reason I've seen Pinocchio again was for some reason, well, quite a few of the Sunday classics were, but it's one of the very first first BBC videos that was released and I later found a copy of that by chance in the second hand record shop in Liverpool where I won't name them but they seem to know the price of everything but the value of nothing <laughs> you know you get say Magic Roundabout records for dirt cheap that you know you'd probably pay a fair whack for elsewhere you know if it was classic rock it was up on the wall with a £50 price sack anything else you know it's like a gold mine in some ways yeah I got the Pinocchio video from there and for a while I had to keep it on my shelf of VHS turned round so that I didn't <laughs> see the spine because it bothered me that much. My family still joke now about that Pinocchio you were scared of, but it really did bother me. One thing that did not help was Lampwick, the lazy boy who is the first to turn into a donkey, was played by the same guy who played Booger Benson, the original bully in Grange Hill. And that gave it an extra sense of, you can't really say reality about this, but you know what I mean, the connection to the real world. It just didn't feel right. Mr. Fox and Mr. Cat are horrible. I cannot understand who at any point during the production thought, this will be great for the kids. I'm not sure who it was for. There are songs, but they're more like a linking bit in an opera where Pinocchio just basically says, I am walking along here and screeching. And that's all. It's just nothing festive or upbeat or joyful about it. It's all it is nasty. A video nasty. A video nasty. Yeah, let's hope the restoration team have no plans to ever get their hands on that. So for your next choice, we're getting back to the world of exciting music. And we're getting our Strictly Come Dancing Latin-style grooves on with added orchestra hits. Let's have a little listen to this clip. Right, I suspect that music might be familiar to some Doctor Who fans, some of our listeners here, especially if they've watched the Doctor Who Years documentaries on VHS. But that's not really what we're here to discuss. Tell me why we've entered this synthesised sci-fi wonderland. Yes, that was Don't Blame It On That Girl by Matt Bianco. (laughs) No, it's actually the Latin version of the Doctor Who theme by Kef McCulloch, and it's from a 1989 EP from Metro Musical, Variations on the Theme, which, you know, I said the easiest way to upset people is to be nice about something i am gonna get hate mail for saying i quite like variations on the theme it somehow has become very unfairly a byword for oh my god what were they thinking they were thinking they'd do something quite interesting with the doctor who theme i think basically i say it's from 1989 and it's got interpretations of the doctor who theme by dominic glynn kef mcculloch and mark Ayres, who were yeah they're very well-known very respected musicians now they were the up-and-coming guys doing doctor who music at that point and that's something i will come back to about why 
why maybe I and sort of people in similar positions to me feel a lot more well disposed towards this. But this was just an attempt to, you know, do something different and interesting with the Doctor Who theme because you've got the Moob version by Mark, the Terror version by Dominic, the Latin version we just heard by Kef, and Mark's Regeneration Mix, which I think was done for the Panopticon, Panopticon conventions. Eight, yes, apparently. which were the big Doctor Who Appreciation Society conventions in the days where things have changed now. It's become more of a money-making enterprise conventions and things have got so much bigger oh, than they yes, were then, yeah. you know, when people just chip in and do things like this as part of contributing to something bigger. And I think conventions in that sense were very different in those days. But anyway, digressing a little bit there, they did this EP and I liked it. I think, well, people are often quite surprised because, you know, I'm well known for my love of 60s deep cuts. They're quite surprised when they find out that I like, well, I'd say it's more people like Bomb the Bass and S-Express, you know, sort of late 80s electronica. But I also really love Heaven 17, Yazoo, all the Vince Clark acts, Depeche Mode, people like that. And I think it's because if you were growing up at that time, it was quite exciting to see somebody on top of the pops with a Roland or a Korg or a Fairlight later on, you know, with the the computer screens as well. Where it's like they made the whole record with that one thing and somebody singing on it. It was exciting. And also, people got really wound up by it and said, this isn't proper music. And that made it more exciting. Yeah. This was kind of a byproduct of that. These were guys who were making music who were inspired by people like the Human League. In more recent years, I've got to know all three musicians a bit. And I found out things like Dominic's take on how he was influenced with Doctor Who music is always quite interesting. He also seems to have had a reference point, whether it was like a Henry Mancini movie score or whatever. Mark, for his first score for The Greatest Show in the Galaxy in 1988, it all made sense when he told me, but I was genuinely surprised when he told me that most of it, because it's about a sort of psychic hippie circus, was based on what was then called New Age music, you know, which became ambient and ambient house. So it would have been more, I suppose people like Enya, but you know, the first stirrings of that. And I thought, oh yeah, but also, there's a rapping ringmaster in that and he based that on Bad Young Brother by Derek B which I was very (laughs) impressed by these were guys who knew what was in the pop charts also they were in a way I'm not going to say they were punk but they were bedroom musicians who they'd heard these records they bought this equipment themselves they'd made tapes they'd sent them into the Doctor Who production office who thought this is quite good we should have them doing the music there was something quite inspirational about that as well it's one of those things where you know as I've got older quite a lot of the people I used to write to you know when they were writing for Weekend ending and things like that you know looking for career tips mm-hmm. have become you know to greater or lesser extent people i know actual friends in some cases but you still always feel a bit in awe of them because they have managed to do this stuff when you were still a kid you know they've done it with that old wherewithal of just battering the door down so i appreciate it for that reason but also i quite like it i remember being at a doctor who convention i think it was would have been nebula 26 would it have been in liverpool where somebody because they had a pa system playing sort of between the events they played this EP and then the 12 inch of drama by Erasure I remember not feeling there was that much distance between them people will probably scoff at that now but that was me as a teenager in 1989 and that's how it felt it felt like somebody had made Doctor Who music that it was alright because a lot of the records a lot of Doctor Who records were dreadful they were rip-offs they were terrible musically and yet the things that get the stick now are this and Doctor in the TARDIS which I think is a great track yeah still one of the good 
Jack's on now 12. <laughs> uh, yeah, I was a big fan of Doctor in the TARDIS. I think the issue here is that legacy of synthesized sounds is very much, whilst they can sound so futuristic at one point, mm. they also are very, very tied into the period from which they come from. Yes. Which is, which is amazing, really, because we can't get into the theory of synthesizers <laughs> here and all this sort of <laughs> stuff. But it is amazing the job that synthesizers do. And like the orchestra hit, for example, that Kef McCulloch loves mm. to use on these things is one of those examples of something that is really not used anymore at all and very very much marks this stuff out as being late 80s but like you say regardless of what synthesizers they've used what sounds they've chosen to use they've still had to write the music still had to arrange it they've still had to come up with this sort of stuff this ep has clearly got you know it's not a weird oh just take this bit from there take you know it's got a sort of theme to it it's all of a piece even better it's on the extremely futuristic format of cd even better than that tim tell me about this cd it is a square cd (laughs) which when you first told me that i thought has he gone mad? And of course, I immediately looked it up. And yes, it is a square, C- or it was available in square CD format, as well as, I think, 12-inch and normal CD format as well. I had the 12-inch, I should say. Of course, you know, that's a club night sort of mix. But what's even better than it being a square CD is that on the normal round CD version, it's still got the same label print as the square CD. So on the round CD, it says, this CD is square. This <laughs> You could have changed that. I mean, it's like, that's brilliant. I just imagine picking up a CD, a round CD, and reading, this CD is square. You'd be thinking, what have they been taking for this? Or did it also kind of imply square in a kind of nerd sense as well? <laughs> well? Possibly, possibly. But yes, I encourage everyone to go and look at a picture of the square Doctor Who CD. Apparently it wouldn't play on some early CD players. Yes, the warning is basically to say this is not an internationally conforming standard for CD, so I suspect it probably wouldn't. And I don't think I would encourage anyone to put it into a CD player these days. Definitely not on a computer or anything like that. I think it was the only ever square CD as well i've never come across another one world's first square cd it says on the label on the front and yeah it could another sticker world's only square cd yeah some nice notes from john nathan turner in the sleeve as well to go alongside it and then a reissue on silver screen a few years later well i think yes that is quite an important detail and it's something i don't want to go too far into because it does come into one of our later choices but john nathan turner seemed to be without having really the knowledge or the wherewithal to do it or the sense of what the wider public actually liked. He was all in favour of anything that was trying to take Doctor Who into wider consciousness, but not in the kind of I don't know, sometimes he courted the tabloids and things, which wasn't the right thing to do. But he encouraged things like this, where it was, it doesn't have to be this niche interest. It can go into other areas. But I don't think he quite had a handle on how to do that. And his sleeve notes are great, but they're not quite making the most of this, I don't think. No, no, maybe not. But they're good that they're there. It gives it a bit of legitimacy. It's not just some bonkers people with synthesizers doing this thing. But it's great. And yeah, you can listen to it all pretty easily online now. And yeah, I don't know that you'd have it on rotation but it's certainly an interesting thing to hear. Well you certainly not the square CD on rotation because it won't rotate. No. Do not send us any bills for broken CD players. I suppose that music there has taken us to the end of the 80s, 1989. We're into the 90s then by implication in what was something of a netherworld between the old series and the TV movie, let alone the new series. So let's have a listen to something that was going on helping to keep Doctor Who fans interested during this time. Ah, there you are Doctor. Well of course I am. Where else should I be? Honestly, Lethbridge Stewart. At times you can be extremely annoying. Ah, good morning. Oh, this is Miss Sarah Jane Smith, the ah, journalist. Hello. 
She's just leaving. No, I wasn't. Look, Doctor, I'm sorry if I've upset you, but... Oh, look, I... is it important, Brigadier? Because I'm trying to get some work done. Goodbye, Miss Smith. But, Doctor, I... Yeah, look, the psychotelemetric circuit of the TARDIS has gone on the blink, Brigadier, and I'm finding it excessively... Di- oh, look, now... Look what you made me do now. What do you want for Pete's sake? Well, I want you to come with me to the opening of this new exhibition thing on Hampstead Heath. I have to... Uh, exhibition? No, a theme park, fun fair, whatever. You must have noticed the Apollo rocket. Dominates the whole North London skyline. Huh? You, you mean Space World? I might come too. The press showing is at 12. That's the fellow. OK, there should be some fairly familiar voices in there that people will recognise. Tim? What were we listening to? That is John Pertwee, Nicholas Courtney, and Elizabeth Sladen in The Paradise of Death, which is a 1993 Doctor Who serial on BBC Radio 5, followed by, although it was made almost concurrently with it, The Ghosts of End Space on Radio 2 in 1996. There's a whole story there. Yeah, this was a revival of early 70s Doctor Who on the radio at a time when, and I think this is the important thing here, it genuinely felt at that point, like Doctor Who was a done deal. Yes, yeah. There were rumours that somebody was going to make a TV movie in America, but there'd been many rumours before. I genuinely thought that was it. And I think this is important because I think without those four or five years in the early 90s, a lot of everyone, fans, public, and people who hated it alike, and people who joked about endless scarves and rubber corridors or whatever it is, (laughs) to have a bit of distance from it and lose some of the preconceived ideas they had because it does astonish me sometimes when you look back, particularly in the 80s, and see how Doctor Who was treated as almost like as a special case, as if it was different to the rest of television. But I think during this time, for me personally, it kind of fizzled back into being part of my other interests. And I think the key thing here is, I remember listening to this, and I've been quite excited that it was on, but I was no more excited than I would have been about listening to, say, Out on Blue Six with Mark Radcliffe on Radio 1, or Lionel Nimrod's Inexplicable World, which is an early Lee and Herring series. Mm -hmm. It was a radio programme I wanted to listen to, and I think that's really quite significant. It was that remove that allowed certain people more talented and connected than I was to get the wheels in motion for eventually bringing it back. I think it allowed for a kind of space and a discovery of what you could do with something that ultimately, I'm going to get hate mail for this, is just another property and needs to be treated as such. And aside from that, I quite enjoyed, quite enjoyed is the key sort of (laughs) phrase there. I think there were problems with them, but it was nice to hear Pertwee and his two, I would say, most loved sidekicks back on the radio, back in their roles, doing stories apparently set between the Time Warrior and Invasion of the Dinosaurs, which it sort of flimsily does, but it throws all kinds of other headaches and questions into the equation. Yes, certainly does. And both serials sort of lose direction after a bit and they can't decide whether they want to be. Because this is another thing. There was a sort of, unlike the 70s revival that came later with the whole hauntology thing and look around you and so on, there was a 70s revival on the more sort of basic footing in the early 90s. I think one of the things that led into Britpop, where it was about spangles and space hoppers and so on. And poetry was very much seen as part of that. I remember magazines like Select started referring to Doctor Who the poetry years while they were reviewing, say, a St. Etienne album. Yeah. It seems to have had one foot in that and the other in wanting to be seen as... Because these were both written by Barry Letts, who obviously was the early 70s showrunner. It's his view of what constitutes dynamic thrusting adult entertainment, which it reminds me a bit of the goodies adult album and the adult book 
they did where it's like what adults do you know well that's an interesting point yes because i was listening to paradise of death i'd not heard this before it's all available through like audible and stuff like that now so i got the paradise of death and i listened to and there was bits of it i thought oh that's not kids show doctor who there's like scenes with a sort of virtual reality type thing where suddenly one of the characters is about to be, let's say seduced is a word mm-hmm. to describe it, but it's clearly a bit more than that. And that's happening in a scene with Elizabeth Sladen in there as well. It's like very, I thought that's a bit weird for what you would say, put the kids down in front of this. And it's like, but no, no. As a character in The Paradise of Death as well, the sort of main antagonist who is very, almost like a sort of grotesque Roman emperor type Nero character, very odd very weird tone to it but by the same token what i was also impressed by was listening to it it did feel like doctor who a lot of the time yeah and because you've got pertwee sladen and courtney there you feel confident in them as actors and those voices feel comfortable with those especially elizabeth sladen you know you're in safe hands it's good theater of the mind stuff i think well there are a couple of other familiar names from that era as well people like stephen thorns in it Mm -hmm. also harry taub who if you've ever seen a late 60s or early 70s doctor who you've seen harry taub with about 27 million different roles but he seems to have a weird sort of career renaissance around this time because he's in the day-to-day twice he's the man who chris morris is interviewing where morris says oh i've had enough of this and walks off the set and he's looking confused he is also the vox popped politician in the bomb dog sketch he says in my considered opinion they are (laughs) with the explosion but also we've got a guy called richard pierce playing a new character called jerry fitzoliver who's a photographer who works alongside sarah at metropolitan magazine i think he's quite a good character i think it's a shame he's not really reappeared in anything since don't worry big finish will have a six (laughs) volume set out soon i will say by the way don't go near the two novels based on these serials all right they forget about the bits that were good about (laughs) the radio versions that's all i'll say now the character of jeremy is interesting partly because what it does is it removes the need to make sarah jane into a sort of drippy female companion so jeremy gets all the oh i'm trapped with my foot in a root type thing (laughs) oh no gets trapped a lot doesn't it yeah and gives liz sladen's character more opportunity to be more proactive and be the sort of a driving force rather than a victim of circumstances so it's quite nice in that way although he is drawn very much like a upper class twit type thing yeah well there's lots of talk of class in paradise of death there's lots of like how the planet is divided up into upper middle middle upper upper middle upper stuff like that that i'd started to lose track of and i would suggest that because it's maybe because it's five episodes long it's an episode too long i don't know i haven't listened to ghosts of end space yet but that's six episodes long that loses its way a bit as well I think it's interesting that, like I say, there was a couple of years between the two. The reason being, Radio 5, as it was first launched, was completely different to Radio 5 as you'd know it now. It was kind of, it seemed to be an attempt to go back to the Radio 1 and Radio 2 of the launch of, you know, the 1967 iterations, where, you know, mm-hmm. it was a mix of DJ music shows and speech drama and magazine shows. I mean, it only lasted for a couple of years, but there were things on there like, that's where Room 101 started, yeah. was on Radio 5. There was Club Class, which is a stand-up show recorded in a live comedy venue where it had a lot of people who, like Eddie Izzard, who went on to become very famous. There's also a very young, she won't appreciate me bringing this up, a very young Victoria Corran Mitchell, I think about 14 or 15 at the time, doing a stand-up set. And bless her, it's clearly been a long recording because last order's bell rings during a set. Cult Radio, that's where Mark and Lard first started and people like Mark Kermode started on there. Sleeping with the NME, which is that documentary that's on the B-side 
kind of suicide is painless by the Manic Street Preachers, where it's got Collins and McConey talking about Richie cutting his arm and saying, why has he written T-Rex on his arm? Which then led into, they had a show on Radio 5 called Fantastic Voyage, which then led to the Collins and McConey double act. And Morning Edition was the morning DJ show presented by people like Danny Baker, Nick Hancock, and on a couple of occasions, Chris Morris. Ah. That went, and with it went, The Ghost of Endspace, which was eventually picked up by Radio 2. I remember a Doctor Who fanzine running a spoof news article about it being given a new broadcast date of something like the 14th of December 1872. <laughs> the Doctor Who Appreciation Society were up in arms saying, ironically, we don't have access to time travel. The whole atmosphere is interesting because I look back on having recently written quite a bit about Doctor Who on the radio for, as I say, 60 moments in time. I look back at that era and think that was when people on the radio were starting to talk about it more affectionately. There were things like, you get sort of art shows doing features on, you know, exhibitions or conventions that actually seem to be interested in them rather than chortling all the people offering jelly babies to each other. Mark Kermode played Who is the Doctor by John Pertwee on the Antiques Records Roadshow on Radio 1 and everyone seemed to love it. <laughs> they weren't sort of sneering at it. Remember listening to the music machine on Radio 3 because Mike Edwards from Jesus Jones, who was a huge fan of at that point, was going to be on it. What he was on it talking about was how the Dalek voice had got him interested in making electronic music. There was people like, well, Chris Morris, Lee and Herring, Collins and McConey, the Mary Whitehouse experience as well, making jokes about Doctor Who that were not about cheapness or rubbish monsters. They were the work of people who had watched it when they were kids. And you know, there's the thing of Stu saying to Rich, oh yeah, you think you're playing Doctor Who, you're seeing the Silurians, which I really love because that obviously was a reference to them thinking as kids, having read the yeah, target yeah. novel, it was pronounced Silurians. And it just seemed to be a time when public opinion was starting to swing back more favourably towards Doctor Who and these two serials whatever their strengths or weaknesses were right in the middle of that yeah and of course Paradise of Death is in 1993 so that is an anniversary year as well and you have things like 30 years in the TARDIS cropping up as well at the same time which was that was the first of its kind that was absolutely brilliant it looks a bit clunky now and the celebrity vox pops I could do without but to see it taken seriously, but in a jokey way, and with all this amazing archive footage as well, particularly, I always loved that footage of William Hartnell opening that air show, and suddenly yeah, yeah. a Dalek goes past about 90 miles per hour. It looks like it's about to veer off and go to Brand's Hatch and like Lappert and Senna. Yeah, it's great when you see those funny little bits of footage, which obviously, you know, with the Blu-rays and stuff like that, they try to recover a lot now and they include it. But things like when there wasn't that much to see, yeah. and particularly if you were, I wasn't a new fan, I'd watched it very much in the late 80s, but to come to those things a few years later on and say, wow, there's all this stuff there and people have really cared and there's a whole community behind it. Things like 30 Years in the TARDIS were sort of very good for that sort of thing. More fast Daleks, please. That's what I say. Okay, then. On the subject of keeping the show alive outside of the confines of the television screen, let's get ourselves in the queue for the box office and see if we can't score some tickets to your next choice. Business, we always aim to please. Business is business throughout the galaxies. Come to Bar Galactica for all star mercenaries. Tim, what was that? Whose business is whose business? Doctor Who business? 
What's going on? That is a song from the Doctor Who musical from 1989, The Ultimate Adventure. Ultimate Adventure. I have quite the relationship with this production. I wasn't actually in it. That makes it sound like I was in it. Your first directorial debut. (laughs) I wish. No, it really did exist. It did happen. You might find that hard to believe now for reasons I'll come back to. But the first I knew of this, there was an advert in Liverpool Echo late in 1988. They just said that going to be on at the Empire, it was just in the square box with a huge black border. And it was actually in quote marks, Doctor Who based on the BBC TV series, BBC hyphen TV. Yeah. And there was an immediate kind of, you know, this is in the days when people had to phone each other up to say, what's all that about? My dear friend, Paul Condon, phoned the Empire because he was editing our Doctor Who local group's newsletter at that point. He phoned the Empire to try and find out what it was. And they said, all we know is it's got lasers in it. (laughs) Now that could have meant anything. That's enough, I'm there. That could have meant anything, because on the one hand, it could have been a laser battle in it. On the other, lasers were quite sort of the sophisticated thing in the late 80s. You think of, well, I mean, in Doctor Who itself, in Remembrance of the Daleks, it's got one of those plasma globes that looked high-tech at the time. Anything that was in the innovations catalogue seemed to be laser-based. You know, you could get at your home to listen to, well, I suppose, whatever inspired Mark to do the greatest show in the galaxy music and have a laser in the background. I must say that just to pick up on that is, if you look at the poster, which you can find online, Line for John Pertwee in Doctor Who, The Ultimate Adventure. It has in a big yellow flashy bubble thing to the side, stunning high-tech and laser effects. And then in another bubble it says, on stage. <laughs> so lasers are front and centre. And it's on stage, what an innovation. Yeah. I also love the way there are not quite copyright averting the Daleks and Cybermen in particular are just drawn differently enough to not involve any royalty, even though they were both used in the show, in yes. the original form. But there's also what appears to be a very heavily altered crawl. Yes, there now, is. Now, yeah, yeah. I know Terry Nation could be a stickler for copyright, but I don't think he was that bothered about Stigler on the Marshall Shadarchy by that point. But yeah, I mean, what were with almost this has taken a large group of teenagers in those days. A huge number of us went on the first night, including people who listeners to this show will know, including Jim Sangster, Stephen O'Brien, Will McLean. We were all there, and it was silly. It was ridiculous. It had some dreadful bits in it. I remember rolling my eyes at. There's a bit where Perchu came back out and said, "Right, I've reversed the polarity of the neutron flow," and yeah, there's kind of half in the audience, and I was thinking get over yourselves (laughs) but it was fun it was a night out it was something you wouldn't ordinarily have expected to see again testament to john nathan turner somebody comes to him with this crazy idea and he thought that's going to work it did work i really enjoyed it there's a very loose narrative in it about all these monsters are banded together to i think it's going to kidnap an envoy an american envoy who's headed for a peace conference so that's about 50 john pertry stories copied right there (laughs) and i don't know how it would derail a peace conference by somebody not turning up really no peace for you they would send this one guy's not here And so it becomes a big thing, but he's assisted by... Well, there is... The main sort of villain is Madame Delilah, played by Judith Hippert, who also plays Mrs. T in it off-screen, who obviously is a certain Maggie, as we called her in those days. Assisted by an alien called Zog, who then turns good, who later turned up in dimensions in time. Blimey. And somebody we will come back to again, her assistant Carl, is played by David Banks, who was the cyber leader on TV. The Doctor is assisted by... Crystal and 
and Jason. I think those names are familiar. They are very clearly based on Carly and Jason, and they get to sing an especially for you type song in the middle of it. How lovely. Which did have some lasers while they were singing that. I should expect so. I think she was on the trapeze as well. Well, it does say on the poster, flying by Foy. So whoever Foy is did the flying. It was that important. It was on the poster. Yeah, it sounds incredible. And if you were seeing it in Liverpool, that would have been the 10th to the 15th of April, 1989 at the Empire. Yeah, we would have been there on the 10th. And Day one, yep. eager, hammering on the doors. Perjury dropped the sonic screwdriver during the show and did a bit of business about it, which, you know, on the one hand, he was sort of coming out of character to do it, but he rode it out admirably. But afterwards, obviously everyone hung around the stage door. People came out of various points. Remember, David Banks was really nice. He was, you know, he genuinely seemed to. I don't imagine there's an actor that got bothered at the stage door that often. And he seemed to be revelling in it. Rebecca Thornhill, who was Crystal, was really nice as well. Pertwee, in a bad mood, possibly because he dropped the sonic screwdriver, quite unlike him, because normally he could not have enough time for fans. He basically has something on the lines of, I will sign autographs of people who are here now. Anyone who comes after this point, I'm sorry, they won't get one. At which point, he yanked my programme out of my hand. I wanted him to sign the novel of the Auton Invasion, which I brought <laughs> with me. But he yanked my programme out of my hand, signed it upside down, and thrust it very forcefully back into my hand. It is honestly... It is upside down. <laughs> so The Ultimate Adventure does end up as a big finish production with Colin Baker in the lead role, which I suspect is probably a bit of a different affair with a bit of editing. And well, he took over the second half of the tour, didn't he? Although yeah, David Banks so. played the Doctor one night when Perjury was indisposed. Yeah, well, that's what a promotion. Possibly the shortest <laughs> semi-official Doctor ever. Because it would literally have been, what, three hours or something he was the Doctor for. I think I might have someone who played the Doctor for even less time when I do a little choice at the end of this selection. <laughs> <laughs> but I was trying to think of other TV shows that had like an on-stage life as well. And the only one I could think of right off the top of my head, Allo Allo, which ran for years alongside the actual programme. They did a few sitcom shows. Like I know there was a Steptoe and Someone, The Last of yeah. the Summer Wine one, but they never seemed to catch on. That's the thing. Whereas I think this, you could legitimately consider it a hit. And that's why I am surprised that, you know, it was maybe a year or two. It was certainly before the days when you get simulcasts of plays in cinemas. It was even before you get them on TV. But it was only very shortly before you start to get sell through VHSs and things like Five Guys Named Mo. Right. And yeah. it astonishes me that nobody apparently thought at any point to do a proper recording of it. Yeah, it's interesting because obviously if you look online, there's a lot of like handheld camcorder footage of it, yeah. uh, which is fascinating. How did they get away with that? Because those camcorders are <laughs> yeah. the size of a whale. I know, you can get your bag searched if you go to the theatre now. You would have noticed that at one point, <laughs> wouldn't you? Anyway, let's stay with the subject of adaptations, but this time not screen to stage, but to screen from page. So let's take a listen to a clip from your next choice. Miss Lockhart to see you, Mr. Eats. Miss Lockhart, your father was a tragic loss. It's a terrible thing, the Lavinia going down like that. What are you hanging around for? Well now, my dear, what can I do for you? Mr. Higgs, what was the business that took my father to the East? <sighs> well, hardly the sort of thing to interest a young girl, especially one as pretty as you. I assure you, I am interested. Okay, Tim, 
what were we listening to and why? That was very obviously Billy Piper in the BBC's The Sally Lockhart Mysteries, which ran for two television films in 2006 and 2007, just after she'd left Doctor Who, but it was close enough for it to feel a bit sort of extended universe almost. Yeah. And I was thrilled when I found out they were doing these for two reasons. One is that I love the Sally Lockhart novels. The main reason I love them, I'm not a very big fiction reader, but they're written by Philip Pullman, who I discovered because he wrote a novel that then became a brilliant late 80s ITV serial called How To Be Cool, which is about a group of teenagers in, you know, the early hip-hop Beastie Boys sort of era who discover that fashion is actually controlled by a sinister government department as a means of controlling youth rebellion and maximising textile exports and so on. And it's good enough as a novel, but the TV version, which I think he actually adapted himself, is a fully blown, it's sort of half based on the prisoner, half on the clockwork orange. It's an incredible dystopian thing with remarkable effects. Roger Daltrey plays the head of the cool board. You've got some very 80s satire there. He's brilliant in it. The problem is it's now disappeared because somebody who plays a good guy in it, plays a television producer, is somebody who has long since been very, very, very heavily discredited okay. and he is all over it. So you're not likely to see that again soon, which is a shame because it's a brilliant series. And the young cast were fantastic and they didn't seem to go on to do very much, which is a bit of a shame. But I read the novel of that and then I read other Philip Pullman novels and I love the Sally Lockhart ones. But also, Billy Piper, obviously, I thought had been great in Doctor Who. But I've been thinking for a couple of years before that, there's a really interesting twist to this. After the hits dried up, she started getting small roles and things like she's in the BBC Canterbury Tales. Yeah. She was in a series called Bella and the Boys, which nobody seems to remember, where she was a slightly older kid in Curve. She was in when the BBC did, I don't know how you're supposed to say it, it's like Shakespeare retold. Oh, Shakespeare retold. Capitalisation. Yeah, yeah, yeah. She was hero in Much Ado About Nothing, where I think she was recast as a weather presenter, is my recollection okay. of it. But the very odd thing was, at that point, it wasn't obvious that there would be this new series of Doctor Who. And I remember a fanzine editor asking his writers for ideas on how they bring Doctor Who back. And what is interesting was, I kind of said, it should be, you know, the idea that the Doctor isn't exiled to Earth, but has just had enough of everything else and is choosing to be based here. And I say it should also be not just a female doctor, but a younger female doctor. And I suggested Billy Piper. Ah, nearly right. I think it was mainly on strength of Bella and the boys, but this was the closest that we got to Billy being the doctor, apart from when she was the moment in Day of the Doctor. Oh, yeah, yeah. But yeah, they did the Ruby in the Smoke at Christmas 2006, and then the Shadow in the North Christmas 2007. They didn't do the other two novels, The Tiger in the Well and The Tin Princess, which made me... Think of, I mean, one of my other great literary fiction obsessions is Harry Palmer, Len Dayton Spy, who obviously Michael Caine played in big screen versions, and it was that great ITV version, the Ipcrest file recently. Whenever anyone adapts them, they never do Horse Underwater. Right. And, like, it's so frustrating that we get everything else and not them, and it is frustrating that we got these two and not any more. Yeah, you had to wait a long time for another Philip Pullman (laughs) adaptation to come along. Featuring Doctor Who people. Featuring Doctor Who people, yeah. Well, talking about featuring Doctor Who people, of course, Ruby in the Smoke does feature Matt's Smith as well. Yes, apparently his first television role. Indeed, and who could have foreseen that that young lad would one day end up as the embodiment of Skynet in Terminator Genesis? <laughs> yeah, he's Jim Taylor, who's an associate of Sally, who is an interesting character because he's like a shabby Cockney Jack the Lad. 
But that isn't the limit to his character. He's obsessed with the theatre. He genuinely lives for storytelling. And he falls in love very easily as well. He's not just the usual standard issue. Cockney Rogue with a heart of gold. Also, lower down the cast list, you've got an unknown young lady called Hayley Atwell as Rosa Garland, who is the sister of Fred who has a thing for Sally. But yeah, it's quite an impressive cast. It weren't an impressive cast at that point. Yeah, it's always interesting. And the same sort of goes for when we were looking at the Sunday classics about the... Although at this point, I suppose it's less of this like almost theatre-type cast feeling that you get about Doctor Who. But there is a certain amount of it, for sure, that you're seeing the same sort of names moving on or becoming part of Who. And you get all sorts there, really, like Matt Smith coming out of this or like David Tennant becoming the Doctor off the back of a drama adaptation type thing. There's a lot of that still happening even then. Well, it is fascinating when you look at Russell D. Davis's career leading up Doctor Who. Is so many people who were key in the big series that he did before then ended up either in or writing for or working on this uncapacity Doctor Doctor Who was always assembling a team around him almost. Because one thing is when you look at earlier Doctor Who, you know, the 63 to 89 ones, people involved in it didn't seem to often go on to do very much more interesting. I mean, that's not to say they didn't do high profile things, but you know, what was the main thing Fraser Hines did? Emma Dale Emma Farm. Dale, yeah, yeah. Whereas people seem to be falling over themselves to try and give something interesting to the cast and crew from the revived version. I mean, shortly after this, Billy started doing Secret Diary of a Call Girl, which people forget was based on a blog. Bel de Jour. Yeah, yeah. So if anyone wants to option that thing I did about Nintendo World Cup 90, the rights <laughs> are yours. Yeah, it seems to have gone. I mean, you now get things like, as we talked about in the previous Looks Unfamiliar, Karen Gillan's horror films that she's made. You know, that she's been able to make on the back of her, ultimately, her Doctor Who fame. Yes, definitely. And yeah. I'd like to speak up here for Billy's film, Rare Beasts, which she wrote and directed, which was sort of scuppered by the pandemic. It didn't really come out properly, but I really liked it. Yeah, it's always interesting that people can take the opportunities I mean that's it this is what you do in a career isn't it really and very often you get the cynics all say well it's only because you did that it's like well yes (laughs) that's what happens you make a name for yourself people are more likely to give you money to do things (laughs) so why not do them if you're a creative person especially I don't think these were really that successful though because sort of my main other association apart from liking them is that the DVD box set was always in the works for years and years (laughs) with an increasing amount of lower price tags on it. Yeah, it's always a bit strange, these Philip Pullman ones. I could say I really enjoyed the adaptations of the His Dark Materials trilogy that they did, but sometimes these things don't have legacy. They're there and then they're gone. Maybe this is modern TV landscape. I don't know. What I will say is, on the subject of people who have been in Doctor Who, we are sat here recording this on the day that the actor William Russell, Ian Chesterton himself, turns 99 years old. Happy birthday. I mean, it's kind of insane to think that the character and the actor were back in the show only last year. The next clip isn't Ian Chesterton, but it is a 1960s companion. So let's have a listen to your next choice. Where's the Doctor? He will be here soon. I don't understand. Where are we? I can't think straight. You must rest. The tablets I gave you have made you better, but you must still rest. Tablets? What's going on here? What are we doing out here in the jungle? We had to leave the temple. The TARDIS. The evil ones came. Evil ones? We called them the Daleks. 
Daleks. Okay, it's not always the case that appearing as a companion in the show is going to be a career-defining gig. So tell us who we were listening to then, Tim. Can I just check that you are sure of the implications of describing her as a companion? I don't care. You will get told off by people. I don't care. Because that's the companion whole Companion on my list. The entire reason I have picked Katerina of Troy. <laughs> exactly. Who appeared in part of the Myth Makers and part of the Daleks Master Plan in 1965 and has since been sort of officially removed from canon. Yeah. Which really annoys me because, you know, we're talking about this sort of exceptionalism that surrounds Doctor Who. I think anyone trying to put forward that argument does not understand or care about how television was made in the 60s. Yes, yes, I know what you mean. There's that aspect of a rolling serial and you get what you get week by week rather than this big monolithic block of stuff that has this particular thematic cast and whatever. Well, in those days, it was just... Shows just had a regular cast. As far as I can tell, the idea of a companion in Doctor Who really just came about because the very earliest organised fans in the mid-70s were obviously trying to make lists of things where I would imagine they, you know, probably missed some stories off their initial list because they had to find a library that had old radio times is in or just try and piece together their memories somebody at some point probably did a list of companions because there was no other way to describe them or group them yeah and you know when you talk about if you say it has to be somebody who was there for a specific length of time and traveled in the TARDIS for this reason well that leaves out Liz Shaw yes it does yeah. unit Wilf Mott there's scarcely a more loved character than dear old Bernard Cribbins you know my feelings on Cribbins my big heart lovely and yet it would include Rory's dad and the malice from the awakening and that's not going to be his only appearance in this but there were people who will say Katerina and Sarah who joined the rest of the Daleks master plan before disappearing do not count who will then also describe Riversong, Jackson Lake, Lady Christina, Astrid and so on as companions. There are people who are more excited by those kids that Clara babysat for because they were in a couple of stories than are bothered about Katerina and I think like you say it's a fascinating look at the way things were just made on a week by week basis in the 60s. I think gap to fill so they grabbed the character from the story set in ancient Greece and said right she can stay for a bit until we can think of what to do and people have dismissed her now on the basis of claims about the reasons behind that made by production team members which do not add up I'll mm. say they are not a consistent account of what went on she's only there for a short amount of time but there were short stay Blue Peter presenters in the 60s would you say they didn't present Blue Peter <laughs> are you going through a sort of logical argument here to try and do it but if as I think she's in five episodes Episodes, I think so. The last episode yeah. of the Myth Makers and the first four of the Daleks Master Plan. When you're a kid, five episodes is a long time. Yeah, it is. It's longer than what I suspect the average story length, which I assume is four episodes in in classic Who terms, anyway. And then obviously she's replaced for the rest of that Dalek serial by Sarah Kingdom. We could talk for hours, and as many people have, about what actually defines a companion and what do you put those limits on? Is it longevity of a certain amount? And how how on earth could you ever define? that really well you can't and i think exhibit a here is it's difficult to say with katarina who only if she had a surname we never found it out but sarah is billed in the episode she's in in the same way as the bbc build every regular cast member of any drama show i mean obviously there are exceptions like zed cars have people's rank and so on but by just her first name
fame in the credits. One episode of which she is above Peter Purvis as Stephen, Ooh. who was the other regular. So she was considered part of the regular cast. And you, know, you get people splitting hairs over, say, Jeannie Hopkirk and Randall Hopkirk deceased. You know, oh, does she really count? Because, you know, she's not Jeff or Marty. Or Raps of the Angel and Captain Scarlet, who isn't in every episode, but would it be the same without the Angels? Or this whole thing about Adam Adamant lives, had Georgie and Sims, who he didn't want them with him. So do they count? You know, <laughs> they just hung around those adventures. But it really annoys me. It's like the way, I won't name them, but a certain prominent angry Doctor Who fan likened Chris Chibnall's episodes to Play School. That is incredibly insulting to Play School was one of the most challenging programmes in the 60s that the BBC made. Now you had to do as live 20 minutes to camera, often with people who weren't presenters per se, with props that wouldn't stand up. And the whole history of it is fascinating. It's more interesting to read about than some parts of Doctor Who's history, I'll be honest about that. But <laughs> I do think a problem though was that for a long time, all that existed to Katarina was 12 seconds of her not speaking. Yeah. Struggling in yeah. an airlock with a villain, which was accidentally preserved in an episode of Blue Peter. And then an episode featuring it, the second episode of the Dalek Master Plan, turned up. That was the thing I was the most excited about, was seeing a Katarina episode. And I quite like her, I think she's got... I think there would have been potential for having, you know, this out-of-time character. Yes. Because there are some good jokes she gets as well. Yeah, she doesn't make the jokes, but it's a joke about her not understanding things. I think part of the problem was Terry Nation, who was writing the Dalek Master Plan, didn't like the character, and famously in the episode which it gets written out he just put in square brackets speech here to cover the character of the girl left it the production team to write so uh, yeah I mean when your star writer isn't keen I think that's a problem but I just don't understand why anyone would get that he says that somebody getting exercised about the fact more people should recognise Katarina but why would you be that opposed to the idea of acceptance of it it's almost like say if the Beatles had done this experimental unreleased sound collage <laughs> and there were people saying probably better left in the vault imho oh let's not <laughs> feel my blood rising yeah it's funny i mean she is the shortest lived companion until adam mitchell in the 2000s 2000... doesn't count really yeah it's, and he's there i've never understood quite why he was there except as a sort of warning to others is an odd one but it's, so it's not it's a funny thing to sort of bracket her into a discussion with him but yeah shortest lived character until the 2005 series with that weird boy with that thing in his head so yeah maybe if in the future we get some more episodes turning up that feature her, that would change people's thinking about this sort of thing well i mean we need to find more episodes with her in just generally because i want to see them well exactly Daleks! You can't go wrong with more Daleks, is my view. People love the Daleks. Actual proper Daleks, though, not when one thinks it's a hobo or something. I don't know what they do in recent years, or there's one disguised as the packet of caramel digestives or something like that. Well, just give us actual Daleks, that's all I want. Yeah, and make sure some of them are cardboard cutouts in the background that are increasingly obvious as the resolution of (laughs) Blu-ray reveals. (laughs) Okay, well, as we move on, I must admit, I haven't got a clever link to say anything about this next section, so we're just going to play a bit of music to introduce your next choice. We go together like the news and the weather, we fit like hand in glove. Now and forever Just like birds of a feather We'll fly so high above We stick together like the earth and the sun Like a dentist and fun We go like honey and bees Like a mold on a cheese And like a bird in its nest Like a clown and depressed We, we go, go together, together, you and I Wait for it, wait for it <laughs> Thank you. 
playing with my old horn. Oh, shouldn't you wait till I've gone? Oh, it feels so good to hold it again. Well, you've not had it out in ages. Do you want to go on it? I'm not putting that in my mouth. Flipping it, we're back on the stage again. You're making me giddy. I suspect tickets for your next choice might have been a bit more expensive and more in demand than the ones for the ultimate adventure. So, Tim, A, why did we play that bit of music? And B, why am I talking about being on stage again? This is a musical version of Much Ado About Nothing, starring David Tennant and Catherine Tate, which ran at Wyndham's Theatre in 2011, which I saw... I really enjoyed, and I think it's a shame. It's not had the longevity of from around the same time. Tenant in Hamlet, which, you know, was on BBC4 again the other week, but oh. I thought this was really good. I think it was mainly due to the fact that they are such a great double act. I mean, I remember people being really sceptical when Catherine Tate turned up as Donna at the end of Doomsday. Yes, yeah, yeah. But I was immediately thrilled, because you could see just from those couple of seconds, they have such an energy together. And what convinced me to go and see this was they were on together the Radio 4 panel show, well, I say panel show, chain reaction. It's like a rotating thing of guests where somebody interviews somebody they admire. Yes. And yeah. I can't remember who was interviewing who out of the two of them, but the whole half hour was hysterical. And they've got that sort of, I mean, I know it's exaggerated and played up, but where Tennant is the savvy one, but is prone to flights of oddness and mm. she is the supposedly ditzy one who is a bit more grounded and that's what their characters were like in Doctor Who and in this production as well and it's just a shame it's just a bit I think one thing that didn't help was it didn't get really a commercial release it didn't get the cinema simulcast we were talking about earlier it was available on digital theatre which had a weirdly proprietary player which I think means that people who bought it now can't play it as far as I know. Oh. I mean, it might have been reissued somewhere else now, I don't know, but I think it's a shame. But I do have an obsession with, you know, theatre productions that just come and go and then there's nothing sort of remaining of them. Yeah, yeah. Well, like in the 60s, the Dalek play, Curse of the Daleks. People know very little about that now. Yeah, yeah. And it's, it's, like I say, it's a bit of a shame. I mean, I'm not a great fan of Shakespeare and generally I can't decide what I dislike more out of, you know, the ultra-traditional things Things where there has to be a certain percentage of wood infested by woodworm in the stage before the actors will go on or the ones where they put people in backwards baseball caps and have them clicking their fingers you know to yeah. do it modern but they move this into a sort of Ibiza hedonistic holiday setting by extrapolating for some things in the text that you know resemble hem parties and so on like the same way Baz Luhrmann's Romeo and Juliet one of the really clever things he did was there's that whole thing about basically Romeo's given an amphetamine by Mercutio and they turn that into a big thing about taking ecstasy at a rave in the film which is a you know a clever thing to do because it is not modernized for the sake of it. it's taking something that is there and putting it in a modern context and that's what they did with this and it made it all the funnier and actually on the night i went i mean this could be something that happened every night i don't know there's a bit where captain tate was up on wires <laughs> and appeared to be suffering a wardrobe malfunction which she dealt with with the dexterity of a trained clown she really made a funny thing out of struggling with basically her buttons coming undone i was not objecting put it that way if they did do it every night then I wasn't complaining but I just really liked it and it does make you wonder do people go to see people from TV in the theatre because they've seen them on TV or not I think they well anecdotally I would say people I think they do and I think it's people like Tennant have really attracted people to the stage because of who they are and which of course will then send a load of people into fury of like well you should be coming because of the play and this but that's again (laughs) why you become an actor why you have a reputation if you get that you can do that and you bring audiences in audiences bring in money you can do more stuff all that sort of thing so anecdotally I believe that is the case and it's fair enough and like you say the 
pairing of Tennant and Tate is such an appealing one to fans of Doctor Who particularly, which is why when they announced that they were bringing Tennant back, my immediate feeling was, oh no. Then they announced that it was with Catherine Tate. It was like, okay, well, that's a nice way to do this, I think, because they could very easily have just brought back Billy Piper again, which, you know, no shade to Billy, but a bit more Donna is really, really exciting because of the dynamic they have together, let alone the story of how it's been left in Doctor Who. So yes, I can imagine them being very good on stage together. That was, yeah, you said it was 2011. Tennant was playing Benedict, Catherine Tate playing Beatrice. And that's about all I know about Much Ado Without Nothing. (laughs) Well, we are technically making much ado about nothing here. Yeah, there we go. Okie doke. Well, for your next choice, we're honing in on one very, very specific thing. So as not to give anything away, let's just listen to the best sound effect ever created. Okay, if anyone listening to this doesn't know what that sound was, then, well, I'd be baffled, frankly. It's the TARDIS materialising, but, Tim, where is it materialising in this instance? It's in the sort of forest woodland clearing thing where nobody's been quite sure what it is, because although apparently it is canonical, it doesn't slot in with anything. But this is Meet the 13th Doctor, which was broadcast, I think, after the Wimbledon men's final on the BBC. It was. To announce the casting of Jodie Whittaker. And it is fascinating that we had got to that stage where, you know, there's a whole programme devoted to unveiling Peter Capaldi. When I think back to, I mean, I mentioned earlier about, you know, being aware Tom Baker would change. I don't know how I knew. But, you know, Peter Davison, I think, was just announced on the nine o'clock news. And Sylvester McCoy, which is the one I really remember. Yeah. He was taken hot foot to the Blue Peter studio where he looks absolutely terrified. He's in some kind of mishmash of his normal clothes and his doctor costume. Yeah. He doesn't appear to have anything prepared to say, but he's doing his best, you know, because he was a children's BBC regular around that point so he does his best to answer questions he can't possibly answer and then he says like look forward to the new series I know I am and then pulls like a terrified gurn to the camera but that was the extent of it and it's just interesting it got this big and I would say slipped down a bit in prominence after that which is a bit of a shame but it was such a big deal that I watched this on my phone using 3G because thanks to the typical eccentricities of our beloved transport system I was stuck at Liverpool Lime Street Station. <laughs> I was trying to watch it on this tiny screen while nearby, in the branch of Upper Crust, there was some kind of commotion going on involving security guards. I think eventually the police. And I was trying to focus on this tiny image of somebody who it wasn't clear until about 30 seconds in was a woman striding through, like I say, between some trees. And given that, you know, that was what? That was 2017. Earlier this year, I saw people struggling to watch the almost entirely darkness set secret invasion on yeah, their phones yeah. to avoid being spoiled. Maybe the streaming revolution still isn't what we were promised. But I was that desperate to know who the new Doctor was that I did that. It's an interesting one because, yeah, it's only like a minute long, the sequence that we're talking mm. about. But it does get broadcast immediately after the men's Wimbledon final, which gets something like six million viewers, which is, you know, it's a big number these days. I imagine quite a lot of people saw it who have no interest in Doctor Who and would have been a bit baffled by this person striding through a glade. And yeah, so it relies entirely 
entirely on the TARDIS appearing as the key event. Or is the glowing key the key well, event? Well, yeah, the magical <laughs> glowing key appearing. But it's very subtle in its own way. It, it's not overblown. It's all in one place. It's sort of pastoral. It's an odd one, really, except that you get the fantastic first look at Jodie's face in the hood. And like I said before that, it's not obvious that it's a woman. It's a bit like the Smack My Bitch Up video. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, almost exactly the same as that. No, it's very interesting. It is very interesting. And I wonder really if that's going to end up being a bit of a one-off now as we've rolled towards this anniversary year and everything's sort of known in a way i don't know what secrets there are yet to reveal well as fond as i am of it is a minute long but you know that and the memory watching it there's a part of me that feels it was a bit of a miscalculation as well okay in that it was going to be a controversial decision whatever way you sliced it because there are people who you know are still angry now that they allowed one of them women they have now to be doctor who yeah and you know you've got things like nick fletcher mp <laughs> relatively recently went on a meltdown in Parliament about men's role models being replaced by women, in which he included the equaliser, which McCall is not a role model. No. But yeah, people just still won't accept it. And I think doing it that publicly, that prominently, with not quite the world watching, but everyone encouraged to tune in, including sport people, who yes. there is a subset of whom have some very definite ideas about society. I think they made the rob for their own back, unfortunately. Not that I agree in any way with any of the stupid, idiotic, boneheaded backlash reactions. But I think possibly it was a slight error of judgment. But that said, I loved it. I was excited by it. I was also really pleased to see Jodie. I mean, the main thing people said was, oh, it's her from Broadchurch. But I'd seen her in a few other things. She's Beverly in the St. Trinian's films, which for my money are good comedy films. They do what they set out to do. And she's one of the funniest things in them. She was in Attack the Block, of course. Oh, love Attack the Block. That's brilliant. And you know what? I normally watch that on fireworks night, and I didn't this year. I might just have to watch it anyway. She was in one of the best Black Mirrors, which is the entire history of you. She was also in This Life Plus 10, but we won't hold that against her. Especially because <laughs> that did not happen. Other people have just made that up to prank me. It, <laughs> Fair it enough. didn't exist. <laughs> I feel she was really good in the role, was just a bit underserved in general by, I don't think, the tone of the show show and the script always suited her portrayal and I don't think the BBC were behind the show either yeah I'm... I'm saying that from a viewer's perspective entirely it felt like it, there was sometimes I thought oh okay Doctor Who's on I didn't know <laughs> yeah it's a tricky thing to try and address I think Jodie was absolutely brilliant as the Doctor but like you say didn't necessarily have the material to really really run with it and perhaps a lack of confidence in your cast is shown by having another Doctor turn up part way through even though again she was brilliant and we want both of them to have the best that they can possibly get so so, yeah, an interesting time regardless and a very, very important thing that they did cast her. Well, I do think she sustains my theory that the very best doctors are always people who, I suppose you would define them as you'd seen them in stuff, but yes, didn't know who they yeah. were. Tom Baker being a textbook example of that, he's somebody who'd done quite a lot of TV and film before that, but wasn't by any stretch of the imagination a household name and look at how good he was. Tennant, I'd say, was that as well. He was somebody, you would have known who he was when you saw him, but yes. you wouldn't especially have gone out of your way to say, oh, I'm a really big fan of that man who was a team captain on Channel 4's Ultimate West Wing quiz. <laughs> and so I think that really worked. And I would say, underlining that is the fact that it was me that started the Post Your Jody hashtag on Twitter, as it was in those days, when it was a slightly nicer place. I mean, you know, that got some flack even then, but I just tweeted a photograph of Jodie Whittaker figure and put hashtag Post Your Jody, and a lot of people joined in. I I think you did. I did. Yeah. I, we have the Barbie-type Jodie Whittaker doll as part of our collection of bits and bobs downstairs. 
Okay, I'll tell you what, Tim. I'm not sure if your next choice counts as part of what we might call the lingering legacy of Dalek mania, but let's have a listen to a clip and then see what we think. Dai? Dai? Where are you? I know you're down here somewhere. Dai? Old woman, what are you doing down here? You gave me quite a turn. I came down the mine shaft to get my Dai's lunch, see? He forgot it. I must have taken the wrong turn then. Who are you then? I am a Dalek. My mission on this planet is to make all humans speak properly on one note, like me. Well, uh, I'm Bloodwin. And I couldn't speak on one note if I tried. Your way of speaking is ridiculous. No, it isn't, Flower. We all speak like this in Wales. It adds a bit of interest, you know, variety. I do not like variety. Well, never you mind. You just stay down here, then you won't have to listen, isn't it? Now, I must find my die. Excuse me. Exterminate. Oh, there's lovely. People who aren't Welsh often say that a Welsh accent is more musical than others. But really, all accents are spoken with rhythm and tune. Finally, a Dalek and a Welsh woman together at last. And so I've got a theory about this, that Russell T Davies saw this clip and thought, well, I'm going to claim this for the Welsh. Now a Dalek's done something to a Welsh woman, I'm going to take it back. I'm going to control the Daleks myself from the position of Welsh power. But what actually were we listening to there, Tim? Well, if he claims he saw it, then as I'll come back to, he might be rewriting history because this is something at the time it felt like only I had seen and for years afterwards it felt like that. It's actually longer than Meet the 13th Doctor, but it's an extract from a BBC school show called Walrus. Now, this is important. It's W full stop, A full stop, L full stop, R full stop, U full stop, S full stop. I actually managed to say that properly. It wasn't just called Walrus, it was Walrus. Now, I saw this in 1980. When I was off school one day, I always used to watch the school's TV. Mm-hmm. I mean, the default thing is to say because there's nothing else to watch, which is true. But I also found school's TV fascinating because it's this weird world of what felt like half programs. Yeah. Where yeah. It felt a bit like everything about it was sort of, well, I suppose this has to be on. No, <laughs> yeah. it wasn't a lack of enthusiasm. It was like they knew they weren't making a proper program and everything felt weird as a result of that. You also got Radiophonic Workshop music in it, really weird sort of use of video effects of the day and so on all to teach long division or whatever and walrus i'm just going to call it that from now on we stuff for writing and listening reading understanding speaking was a show i'd not heard of before i mean i saw quite a few weird things that day there was a sort of history of the 20th century thing where it opened with you know the film countdown used to get you know 10 9 8 7 yeah, film yeah, like leader the leader tape yes yeah, yeah. it was one of those but interspersed with newsreel footage including very brief glimpses of an raf logo a sort of pop art mahatma gandhi which is visually haunting me to this day and Mickey Mouse but you know the old feral Mickey Mouse oh yes I'm thinking what is this but yeah Walrus I've not heard of before the continuity slide before it because I'm obsessed with the weird because they didn't really have photos they could use for the school's programme so they just used whatever there was one that had two cartoon birds with very long beaks in hats I'd love to know what that was so somebody can confirm (laughs) to me the one for Walrus had a load of kids with very sort of very late 70s hair so not you know proper 70s hair but almost like restrained versions of 70s 
hair. Okay. But there were clearly different photos that have been arranged together in that way where they are very nearly in proportion with each other. Yeah. You can yeah, tell yeah, yeah. one is very slightly bigger than the other. And also, they've not been glued down properly. You could see where the edges were sticking up, which had nothing to do with this program, which is a very weird thing. I'm led to believe in the earlier series, it was presented by a pre-famed Timmy Mallet. I can't remember who was presenting it this time, but it was all about accents this edition of it and as part of that there was a bit about welsh people speaking in a sort of sing-song voice yes in which a welsh woman basically had an argument with a dalek who wanted to speak in the monotone and got exterminated at the end of it yeah actually exterminated yes, in this yeah. school sketch with, with the proper 80s extermination effect yeah like the inversing yeah. sort of black and white yeah. thing and just this cloud of fog smoke where she's been this poor welsh woman who's just tried to come and bring some lunch to her minor husband husband <laughs> and there is just a dalek there and the thing was for years i won't say nobody believed me about it because you know nobody said oh you're just making that up it was like nobody acknowledged it almost i was off school and i saw a dalek in this thing called walrus which you know nobody remember walrus anyway no i don't remember walrus at all and apparently it ran from 1981 to 1990 yeah that's how do i not remember that this is the years i was at school and i can't find online i mean there were some earlier editions with the sort of radiophonic workshop theme over the end credits i remember when i saw it ending with just kids chanting we want more we want more and i think well, i don't particularly <laughs> don't know what television you've been watching but yeah it just didn't seem to gain in fact i remember mentioning it on the doctor who restoration team forum when they first did the dvd release of resurrection of the daleks which is roughly contemporaneous with although apparently it's one of the daleks that was given away by sugar puffs to promote the second dalek film in 1966 it's not one of the ones that was in use at the bbc at that point yeah so we have that fantastic website that tracks all the uh, Dalek props yes, and can, can tell yeah. you exactly what the code name is for this one and where and how and who it was and what colour it was. I mean, go and look at that, but after listening to this, because you will spend the next five days on there. When they reissued Resurrection of the Daleks in a special edition, it was on there, but it was one of those things where you bring up, like, I feel sorry for people who saw things like, well, one of the alien delegates from the Dalek Master Plan apparently presented at least a portion of Junior points of view in the 60s. I remember being aware of people mentioning that for years before anyone suddenly said, hang on, this is brilliant. One of those weird aliens presented junior points of view. Yeah, there are all these things that, because you didn't see Doctor Who related things every day, you know, it was like, oh, that, that's a surprise. And you remembered yeah, yeah. them, but it's like other people just didn't care. And it was even weirder in this context. I mean, it's not the only thing. I remember in this in the Saturday Superstore where it opened with, they very crudely did the gambit where Cheggers and I can't remember who the other co-hosts that were with him were, would recoil at something moving across the front of the image and it was just superimposed in front of the camera including that one of those do you remember Finger Frights those sort of Nigel Farage monster puppets that, oh yeah yeah yeah, yeah one yeah. of them I think there was a Zoid as well oh I loved Zoids but yeah there was one of these 70s red and blue toy Daleks moving across I remember Checker saying ah it gets hideous <laughs> Wait, what how I mean, you know, you might be scared of Daleks, but it's not hideous. But, I know, that's a strange response. But then he said to a boy, actually, he was looking for it, weren't you? And like, well, you can't make fun of a kid for looking round when you're reacting in horror at something that isn't there. <laughs> I'd also remember later, this would be in the early 90s, seeing a bit of a school's programme that's talking about fear in fiction, which I illustrated with clips of the malice breaking through the church wall in The ah, Awakening. Yeah. And so these things did tend to turn up all the time, but Walrus was a really hard one to convince anyone to take any notice of at 
all. Yeah, well, you know, it's there now. It's on a DVD. And so I'm sure when season 21 comes out, it'll be in beautiful Blu-ray high definition as well. <laughs> and you'll be able to watch this poor Welsh woman and her little basket of food for her husband getting uh, exterminated by a Dalek with a voice that isn't a normal Dalek voice actor. I must point that out. Well, just before we go, I've brought something along to round out this special Doctor Who edition of Looks Unfamiliar. So let's hear a little couple of clips to illustrate it. Well, of course, everyone will remember those famous phrases from Doctor Who, the interactive electronic board game, (laughs) which was part of that first flush of merchandise that came along when the series came back in 2005, of which there was quite a lot. And not all of it necessarily looking exactly like what you were seeing on screen. So this, for instance, I got a couple of years later. My mum, in fact, bought it for us from a charity shop. Amazingly, with all the pieces intact and working. And it has this brilliant model of the Daleks. It has this brilliant model of the TARDIS. When you press the top, it says these phrases and stuff like that. It does have Christopher Eccleston on the counterpieces, but his image is nowhere else in the board game. And I believe, in fact, there are editions where his image is just a black outline possibly after he was leaving the show and they didn't know hadn't announced who was coming in well they could have said it was claw brains from heroes in that case his invisible character well there you go so that would have been a heck of a tie-in but yeah what always fascinated me and my brother was that the fact that when you press the tardis it did these phrases some of which were clearly daleks and some of which were just an actor being the doctor <laughs> and i played them to you earlier on and we i reckon one of them sounds like john oliver we reckon one of them sounds like david tennant even it does I would love to know who was the guy who was brought in to do some generic Doctor Who phrases. And I know there's always these people who get lots of work because they sound like someone popular, but this doesn't sound anything like Chris Eccleston at all, even though this is out at that time. It's absolutely fascinating. I'd be fascinated to know if anyone else had this game and knows anything about it whatsoever. But yeah, there was tons of merchandise. Did you get any of the merchandise when it came back? Yes, because you have to bear in mind that, you know, there was so much of it, and so much of it was in discount stores even by the December because there's so much of it that for people who don't know what to buy you for Christmas it's an easy present to get I ended up with five of you know the doctor's pen that famous pen he had oh, yeah, yeah. when you press the button on it it makes the TARDIS noise yes. or sometimes a Dalek noise. it's worth saying that unlike in Warbrus they are proper Dalek voices in this game they are yeah but I ended up with tons of that not the stuff I really wanted like the novels or whatever it was just things like this like Dalek bubble bath yeah yeah the one thing I really wanted which I never got which just before the pandemic I saw in the book market outside the BFI oh Oh, yeah, yeah, yeah. I was at the BFI for the Talons of Wen Chai Angding just before the first lockdown was announced. I saw the script book the shooting strips of the first series up on the wall and I remember thinking blimey it got that big yeah. there was a mass market book aimed at people on their way out from a supermarket I would say from the way it was designed yeah. with the shooting scripts in so it was massive so yeah I never got this board game unfortunately but it has made me wonder why is it so difficult to do a good board game based on Doctor Who yeah I don't know it's because I suppose it's because the show is I don't, in fact, I don't even know where I'm going with that it's like the show is so sort of personal mm. your sort of your sort of feelings about it what 
what you value about it you know is it the time and spaciness of it is it the character of the doctor and it's very hard to get a character across in a board game especially one that you can sell to kids there's so much style over substance of them i think with this as well it definitely qualifies on that but you got things like war of the daleks it's fantastic got these little plastic daleks that go around the board in a clockwise fashion but it's ultimately still just ludo yeah there's the one with the tom baker one with the big stick of him on the front of the box when he was cast with the plastic tardis where it's great you got those computer printout cards you've got sort of novelty bits where you land on various planets it's still just ludo there's the games workshop one which i do have somewhere which you know is a great game but really it was aimed at gamers and the very early gamers as well because i think games workshop had been open for about 18 months by that point and you really need a degree in role playing to, yeah. to play it battle for the universe which famously has doctor here with a controversial noddy holder incarnation <laughs> that just seems to just like an avalanche of card that, that's all i remember <laughs> you go near the box and you're just attacked by flying bits of cards they spill out i mean i know the general thing was just to do ludo and put say rhubarb on the box but yeah you think there's a huge market out there that's really can you say they're crying out for a satisfying doctor who board game but some of them will be i'm sure that there would be if you get it right i mean there was also there was a version of operation which is a dalek where you have to take <laughs> things out of the inside of a dalek and in fact my niece plays that still that was another one from a charity shop where it's like that's got no relevance to <laughs> anything in doctor who and it's very odd and it's just got lots of bits of plastic and stuff like operation does it was just such a wave of stuff though and plus there was all the magazines with the things on the front so i have still got somewhere the psychic paper and a sonic screwdriver that were on the front of i can't remember what it's called doctor who adventures doctor who adventures magazine because i just couldn't stop myself even though i was clearly a grown man buying these things well there were things like project who which is the radio 2 documentary broadcast just before rose's broadcast came out on cd with extra material i'm not looking back at that and thinking what were they playing at who would buy that i was thinking wow it's amazing that that actually you know people People would want to own that. It's amazing it got a release. Yeah. It's all the far cry from the Talking Book of State of Decay. You know, I would have really wanted that 2005 Christmas back in 1985. Well, with that mention of State of Decay, I suppose that brings us full circle to... That was so exciting, my computer fell off the <laughs> side beside me. I was so clever, e-space puns. Well, it brings us full circle in this episode, so all that remains is for me to say, thank you, Tim, that was fantastic. And if anyone wants to hear any more from me and Tim talking about Doctor Who, and specifically the Daleks and music, you can go and find an old episode of my old podcast, The Head Ballet, where we discuss the fantastic single i'm gonna spend my christmas with a dalek which is brilliant and i do not liken it to smack my bitch up (laughs) thank you tim thank you paul Top of the Box Volume 2 by Tim Worthington. The story behind every album released by BBC Records and Tapes from Play School Play On to Russell Grant's Zodiac Jukebox. Comedy, sound effects, show tunes, folk, singing soap stars, the BBC Radiophonic Workshop and more albums of Birdsong that you ever knew was possible to exist. More details at timworthington.org.